Hello and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and early adopters. <laughs> I am definitely your user experience early adopter, Roman Burkhardt. Joining me as always, Larry King. Larry, how are you? I'm doing well, except for my early adopter issues. <laughs> my fellow early adopter. I am now the proud owner of a early adopter gadget known as the Anova Science Oven, like you, I think it's what you call it, the science oven, <laughs> the precision oven. Right. Yes. So this is something that the Anova company came out with just like, it has, it's been pretty recent, like last couple of months, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it officially hit the market on October. I remember them talking about it like a year ago, and then you told me that you had purchased one like a month back. So, of course, <laughs> I jumped on it, and the oven came, and I was all proud of it. And my wife was like, yes, I'm very excited about the things you're going to cook in it, but I don't like the fact that it's very large and doesn't really fit on our counters under the, the cabinets. But she has a good point. So there was that. But the worst part was <laughs> it's a steam oven, right? It cooks with both heat and steam, and you can control the amount of humidity, and you can do like sous vide cooking in it without doing the vacuum sealing and a big having a big pot of water. You can yep. do that same kind of cooking without doing all that. It's a very versatile oven. So it's got this big old water tank on the right-hand side that you're supposed to put this distilled water in so you can do the steaming functions, right? So I'm like, all right, going to get it all set up. Next day, come down, water all over the counter, water all over the floor. That sucks. <laughs> and then it's got this like little tray in the front that is like, I, it's literally like an eighth of an inch deep, right? That's supposed to mm-hmm, catch mm-hmm. the water, but it was right. filling up too. And there's no way to like actually pull that tray off and like carry it anywhere to drain it because it just like spills mm-hmm. everywhere. So between it just draining water out of the tank and filling up this little tray, I I couldn't use this oven without getting water everywhere. Like every time (laughs) I used it. The future. That's right. So I took a closer look and there was a hairline crack in that water vessel. And so I think all of my problems are stemming from the fact it's just leaking out of there. Oh, man. Well, that'd be great if it was not necessary to return the entire oven. Yeah, because that oven is gigantic. (laughs) And I was smart enough to keep the box and all the packaging, which was a good move on my part. But it sounds like I only have to replace the tank and I won't have. So I'm looking forward to that first time I cook with that oven where I don't have to, you know, deal with water all over the counter and floor. Well, I, I also have the, the Nova Science Oven. I'm very excited, but I agree that there's a, there's a whole list of little things that it, it makes me wonder what the product development process looks like there because clearly there's people on the team who have been using it and trying it and iterating it. But then there's some of those like final design details that you wonder like, well, how did that get out the door without somebody saying, hmm, do you, do you think we should be able to remove the, the catch tray without spilling, spilling water everywhere? It? <laughs> it's like, oh, I we mean, thought about catching the water, but we didn't think about emptying the tray. It's literally like an eighth of an inch deep. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like probably like 16 inches wide, something like that. It's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew the, the, the science oven was going to be 
a significant commitment for us by virtue of our, our place is fairly small and it had to just go on the kitchen counter because there's nowhere else really for it to go. But in my mind's eye, it's, it's an extra microwave. We have a, a microwave built into the range above the, the stove. So I'm thinking it's another microwave, but it's at least 50% larger than a regular typical yeah, <laughs> household it's, microwave. It's big for a microwave. <laughs> we ended up having to buy, because like, we have like these cabinets that, because you're supposed to have like some space around this thing, because it gets hot. The top of it gets really hot, right? It, mm-hmm. It's a full-on oven. And so there was only like an inch maybe above that before our cabinets start on our yes. counters. Well, I feel your pain as a fellow early adopter. My experience with the Anova Precision Oven has been a bit smoother, though I have had some mysterious water all over the place issues. Even more unnerving is that I didn't do anything to fix it. It just hasn't done it again. So <laughs> I just keep worrying that one day I'll come down and yeah, the, you know, the floors are going to be wet and the, the hardwoods are going to be ruined from, you know, not noticing some uh, mystery leak, but still so far, I recommend the, the thing. I mean, if you don't mind taking your lumps as an early adopter, the cooking has been pretty, pretty dynamite. I would have to agree with that. I've done two dishes so far. I did the, the pork barbecue and we also, I did a, a pork loin, pork tenderloin. That was the first thing I cooked in it. And pork tenderloin, it was like 140 degrees. Put the little put the little temperature probe in there and just set it and forget it. And then it tells you, I get a little notification on my watch. It's like, turkey's done. Yeah, so that, that, that's kind of cool. And so the, the cooking results are definitely great. I'm looking forward to making like bread in it. Because, um, you know, like if you want to make the, you know, real, like uh, a French person doesn't make fun of you baguette. Um, the the steam is an important part of that process uh, to to mm-hmm. to get that texture right mm-hmm. in the bread. So I'm actually looking forward to to doing that. Dagum. AirPods Pro Max came out today <laughs> as we're recording. <laughs> that so. name, ah. what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> to go right to go with my iPhone 12 Pro Max. <laughs> <laughs> I think it does the things like it does like surround sound Dolby Atmos without having multiple speakers. You can just do with the two speakers right, right. and and the gyroscope that allows to the it to know where your head is and moving. But the problem mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. I don't watch like a movie that has Dolby Atmos like on my phone. I'm typically not doing that. If I'm doing that, I'm watching it on my TV, which I don't have a surround sound stuff for. Yeah, the Apple TV is is clearly overdue for just a, a bump feature release. I mean, it's already 4K and it's already great with the exception, of course, of the remote. Um, yeah. The remote is garbage. But it is garbage. Yeah. I feel like they've just like kind of given up on Apple TV hardware and focused more on Apple TV as a content platform that has presence on other people's hardware, right? As soon as they started supporting Roku and got it on all the TVs and, yeah. and, 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 and then it just, it kind of just, well, nobody cares anymore. We don't care well, about that. Well, there's proof that they're, that they're really serious about services, right? The fact that they're letting Apple TV be wherever. I'm actually more excited about watching Apple TV plus content on the new Xbox. Shh, don't tell the kid for Christmas, it's going to be available on, on the new Xbox. And I know everything's going to be great on there, including I have a, a remote for the Xbox that has real buttons on it. And I <laughs> what? won't have to put up with that Apple TV remote anymore. <laughs> real uh, buttons. Oh my gosh. That remote is so 
It's it's infuriating that remote is. <laughs> Impossibly bad. <laughs> Well, as we wrap up another delightful year, I find myself in a contemplative mindset around the holidays. I try to take time to to think about my goals for the year ahead. And that usually, of course, includes career progression. And while there are a lot of fun UX design specializations, in the last few years, design operations, or design ops, as all the cool kids call it, that's emerged as an important role for a lot of design teams. And so, Larry, I know that you've been working in a design ops capacity, so I thought it would be a good time for us to explore design ops, both as a practice and as a potential career choice. I'm um, happy to talk about that. Like you said, I actually kind of pushed my way into a design ops role in the current company that I'm at. I kind of pitched it to my boss, and it was at a time in the, in, in the, the evolution of our company and our team where it made a lot of sense for me to do that. And so I basically, we went from no design operations thought or applications, and and now we have a design operations practice of one. Well, let's take it from the top. What is design operations, better known as design ops? I I really like the way that Dave Maloof sort of uh, frames design operations. And it's really about amplifying the design, amplifying the value of design in an organization. Take a look, you know, from a designer standpoint, it's like we look at the work that we do, we know it's valuable, and we try to make sure that value happens all the time. But sometimes it, when you get to a certain scale and you're working in a large or complex organization, it, it becomes necessary for there to be somebody who actually pays attention to just that because you've gotten, uh, because you've gotten to a certain you know, size certain complexity, certain amount of UX personnel and, and management levels and things like that. It, it just, it, it comes to a point where it makes sense. And I can give you a good example of that. In my current job, we had, when I came in here, we had three UX managers and a UX director, right? And then individual contributors under all of us. And if we looked at the types of things that we were doing from an operations standpoint, like making sure we have the right tools, making sure that we're interfacing with HR when it comes to people and hiring and, and, and career path development and, and things like that, what ended up happening was as the management team, we would just like, well, whoever had bandwidth at the time would just like take care of that. Or we would share responsibilities for something. Or we would do something, but we wouldn't give it the attention it would needed because we have all these other important stuff that we have to do. And, and a lot of these operational things just get sidelined. And so what I found was, and this is how I made the case, was like, we're to the scale now where these really important things are sort of getting the short shrift and we're not giving them the attention they need because we're either, like I said, we're either sharing responsibilities for it or one person's, whoever has the bandwidth takes care of it or we just don't have the time to give it the, 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 the attention that it needs. And so mm-hmm. when you have somebody you know, who's dedicated to that, then now you've gotten to the point, you've gotten somebody who's, that's their job is to take care of those things as opposed to strategic design stuff or tactical design stuff. Yeah, it almost sounds like the, the, the team version of designers who have a hard time you know, keeping their portfolio updated. So important. You need to stick with it on a consistent basis for it to be doing you any good. And yet... I'll speak for myself. <laughs> it's, it's the last thing on my list of, of 
things to do. It kind of reminds me of when I was first exposed to DevOps, and um, somebody that I worked with had a really good explanation of what DevOps was. DevOps was explained to me as a way to keep developers focused on the problem of solving, you know, engineering problems for the projects they're working on and getting rid of the overhead of builds and and pipelines and 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 all this other overhead that it takes for you to go from written code to actually production and into customers' hands. There's a lot of a lot of overhead that goes into that and if we can get the engineers to stop working about worrying about those problems and focusing on the customer problems that they're trying to solve with 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 code, then we make them more productive. And so there's uh, an analogy, I think, with designers as well. If we can get rid of some of that overhead that they have to think about and really get them to focus on the design and, and solving customer problems, then we make them more effective as designers. And then that, in turn, amplifies the, the value that we provide the organization. Well, that makes a ton of sense. I remember my first corporate job as a web designer. It took at least a week and a half just to get my laptop set up to be able to pull the latest code from the repository and run a build and have the right Java runtime (laughs) installed and just all those dependencies that at the time, every developer had to do that as a matter of course. And then all the designers were having to do it in order to be able to see what was being built as it was being built because we didn't have demo environments and, and so on. So it, it seems like a, a really good parallel, the, 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 the DevOps to design ops. By the way, not DesOps, no. Oh, does somebody say DesOps? Hey, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> I, I might have run across it doing research for the show. Is it, is it GIF or is it GIF? <laughs> it's just peanut butter, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you said that your role, there wasn't anybody working in a design ops capacity, but the, the, the need was apparent. And so you just kind of pitched your way into, um, that new role. Can you give me an idea of like what, what was going on with the team or, or I guess to generalize it, what kind of teams need, a, a design ops? Well, it's when you get to a certain scale. Right. If you have a team of somebody has head of design and, and three designers, you really don't need a des- design ops manager. Right. Because because really, it's really just design management. Right. There's It's it's not really much different than than design management. But when you like I said, when you get to a certain scale, then design management, the number of responsibilities you have as you grow teams and have bigger teams and you have more complex teams you get to the point where, okay, now design management is too wide of a thing and we need to somebody specialize in certain areas of it. And so design ops, design program management, you begin to specialize. And you like, for instance, when you're, when you're growing a team, you know, people tend to do their own user research. But if you get to a certain scale, it starts to make sense that you have somebody dedicated to, to, to user research for the, a certain number of people. And Peter Moorholtz and, and, and Christian Skinner have done a lot of really good thought and, and writing about this in their the Org Design for Design Orgs book, where they, they talk a lot about this. As you scale, there's these, these roles that start to emerge that need to happen so you can specialize and really focus on those things that, that start to break as you start to scale teams. And one of those is the design operations. in our practice where we've gotten a lot of legs out of design operations is, is the, the user research question, right? So 
one of the barriers for designers doing their own research is it's a lot of work, right? The the research part isn't so much work. It is coming up with the test plan, writing the the writing the the, the scripts, um, trying to source users, trying to to get users to show up, and doing all the synthesis and all this stuff. It's like it it's it's really a lot of work. And what ends up happening is you do less research and you do less quality research because of it, right? Because you don't, because mm-hmm. because a good designer is just going to do what they need to get the information that they need for the problems they have right now and move on. And then you start to, what ends up happening is you lose that information for people that might need it for another project or somewhere else in the organization that may have the same research question that you did. And you just, you, you got your answers and moved on with your design and we've, the, the organization's lost that information. Right. And so one of the things that we've done with research operations, which is just another type of operations is make it easier for designers to get the information they need, be able to synthesize that in a group with partnering with product management and engineering and, and, and UX together. And then being able to make sure that that information is actionable for their immediate project, but also that information and that knowledge gets recorded in a way that's available to the organization in the future for other use cases as well. And so when you have somebody paying attention to operations there, you make it so you get, you get the design, you get the research done, you, the designers get the value that they need, but we also maintain that, that knowledge for the organization in the future. Just capturing some of it for for posterity can be so crucial, especially in, I don't know about your organization, but in some of the organizations that I am familiar with, projects uh, and ideas have a way of falling off and then coming back around. It's almost <laughs> like these these boomerang projects that you just when you think you're done, here it comes again. And by that point, and I'm thinking of one specifically that I've been involved in this year, six months ago, and now all of a sudden it's back. And thank goodness I, I have some some pretty good notes on the topic, but just trying to get my brain back to, okay, what, well, why did we do it this way? And why didn't we do it the other way? And, and the way that somebody told us we were supposed to do, and we made a decision that we wanted to, to take a different approach. All that stuff uh, is so easily lost to the to the sands of time. <laughs> yeah, somebody needs to make like a Slack plugin. That's a, just a, and they they're probably it's probably exists. I'm, I don't know what I'm talking about, but <laughs> it's just like a decision management plugin, right? So it's like, hey, here is a decision that needs to be made. Oh, here was the decision that was made, and here's the timestamp, and here's the people that were involved and who and who made it, and so that when you decide to change that decision, we can say, oh, we made that decision. Now we're going to consciously change it. And here is a record of that that is visible for everybody to see, as opposed to like, oh, I thought we did that. Didn't somebody say that we were going to do this? And then it's like, oh, yeah, I think so. (laughs) Making things concrete is kind of important. And I don't think we make enough things concrete or enough of the right things concrete sometimes. Larry, you you said that you got into design ops because you recognized a need in your organization. And so you were essentially willing to to fill that role. But what was it about design ops that attracts you to it? What makes you want to be a design ops person? Remember earlier in the show, we talked about early adopters. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm not only an early adopter of gadgets, I'm also an early adopter of 
new methods and new things, right? In fact, that's the mm. thing that got me into UX and design in the first place, right? Back in the early 2000s, I saw mm-hmm. how much like websites sucked and, and online products were just terrible. You couldn't figure out where to find anything in them. And then I heard about this thing called usability and I'm just like, this is going to be big. <laughs> and so the, that's the reason why I started getting into it, right? Because I, I I thought it was like, the, it was the future of, there was, I, I saw a big future in it, right? And so mm-hmm. that that's the kind of the thing that got me to UX in the, in the first place. And so when Lou Rosenfeld started writing about eh, this design ops thing, I think there's something there. Let's have a conference about it. I went to the first conference and it was like, well, Lou Rosenfeld's conferences are great if you ever get a chance to go to one. I don't care what the subject is, go to it because it'll be awesome. He puts on the the best conferences. Very, very well designed, very, very thoughtful, really well done. But I went to the first one and it was really, really great. And it was really just like, it was just them exploring, like, what is this thing that's, that's evolving called design operations? There was people in the audience that had already had those titles, like design mm-hmm. program manager, design operations. And, and so it was really just an exploration of what it was, what, what, what people thought it was. And so it just began to emerge. And then when you got to, I missed the second year, but I was able to go to the third year. And by the time the third year one is like, okay, yeah, here's things that people do when it, when it comes to design operations. And it was really about people's tools, processes, and, 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 and measuring success in organizations. And the really great thing about it was Lou was drawing not from just the design community. Like there was people from, from the DevOps community and from people that were in, there was in this last year, there was somebody from IBM who worked on their, their global IT team where they measure employee engagement and making sure that the employees have the tools that they need to succeed, mm-hmm. te- technical tools. And so they mm-hmm. were talking about measurement of, of employee satisfaction and, and, and the efficacy of tools and, and, and how that makes them um, more efficient as a company and and as 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 teams and individuals, and so just all these things that are like and because operations really is not just like in the in in the silo of design. It really has to reach out into product management, engineering, and and HR and 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 marketing and all these other parts of the organization that are important for the success of design and and and, and customers. So it's it's really important to be able to break through silos and 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 draw from knowledge draw experiences from that other silos and other disciplines have done in this area but then have that collaborative spirit of design to to be able to to reach across the aisle into into these other uh, disciplines to to collaborate one of the things i've always enjoyed about ux i i guess arriving in the the field pretty early on as it was evolving everybody was coming to the field from something else so everybody you met who is in UX used to do something different, just automatically. You could assume it. Based on that, I'm curious, does a design ops person need to be a designer? Or do you think that the activities and disciplines of design ops kind of transcend that, so to speak? I think having a design background helps a lot because you're dealing with trying to make design more efficient, design more impactful, amplifying the value of it. And if you don't understand design at a fundamental level and, and, and where its value is and how it works, I think you're going to have troubles being successful, being in, in, in operations. Now I could be wrong about that. 
And mm-hmm. most of the people that I have sort of met that are in the designer ops community are have some sort of design background first. I haven't seen a lot of people that were just like, oh, I was in program management and in IT program management, but then got into to the de- design ops. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It probably does. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I think it, 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 it helps a lot to have that context. I suppose that makes sense that like, like you, of course, I'm an early adopter. If you have somebody who's running your design ops, who at least doesn't have some kind of a design background, if that person is responsible for making sure that you, that everybody on the team has the the tools that they need and so on, maybe, maybe there's a risk of selecting software based off of the, the feature matrix rather than actual usability. So does, but somebody potentially pick the wrong tool because it was cheaper and it had all the features marked on the box, but hadn't really actually spent any time <laughs> with the mouse feeling the pain of, of using the software. So I can see where, yeah, you would, you'd want somebody who is pretty intimately familiar with what it's like to, to do design work. Yeah. I think that's just important because you have to understand the value of design and where that value comes from in order to do activities that's going to make that more impactful in the organization. So either you have to come from design or you have to have worked closely with design for a period of time to understand it, where its value comes fundamentally, I think, to be effective. And then the other side of that same coin, as a designer moving into design ops, are you still a designer? Well, if you define, depends on how you define design, Roman. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jared Spool. (laughs) If you're taking the Jared Spool definition, then everyone is a designer. Then, of course, I'm still designing. No, I I mean, I I haven't opened Figma Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the entire time I've been in design ops. I mostly just make PowerPoints and, 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 and have meetings with people and do things like that and meet with vendors and write a lot. I write a lot. In fact, um, one of the big things that I've done is really, we have this thing called, we call the UX hub, which is a SharePoint shutter uh, site that I maintain that has a lot of the, it's got a lot of content up there that really kind of talks about the value of design to the rest of the organization so that they understand what we mean when we're talking about UX design. It's not just pushing pixels around a, a screen for a product manager, right? It's it's really f- fundamentally understanding the customer. We have a lot of stuff about our user research practice and the types of research we do and how to do the research. In our We have a, a, a whole playbook site that talks about design research and collaboration and and, and design synthesis and, and, and things like that. So it, it's, it's a lot of it's it's really a lot of meetings, PowerPoints, writing, and 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 changing hearts and minds. Honestly, so I don't really design anything other than PowerPoints and and writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's a good point too. So, what kind of uh, person, or really, what kind of designer do you think should not consider moving into de- design ops? Ooh, that's a good one. Somebody who can't yeah i th- i think this is just in people going into design management in general being able to let go of control and instead of like pulling the big lever of i'm going to make this change here and 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 go in and and, and do a bunch of work to 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 get a result it's moving a bunch of little levers that push other people into the direction they need to go to 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 get to to, to move the organization the way that you want it to go. So 
if you really like to have a lot of control, then uh, maybe design ops isn't for you. Maybe that it's more of a, you need to be more of an, uh, a Steve Jobs product role where you just tell everybody <laughs> their stuff is shit. But if you are really interested in organizational culture, organizational psychology, and and figuring out ways to affect how people work in, 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 in little ways that have big impacts down the road, then I think that's, that's something that would be interesting for, for, for people. But it's like, I, if you really love the, the, the process of doing design work for products and putting value into customers' hands directly mm-hmm. and tactically, it's, this, is, it may, this may not be for you. Hmm. Good point. So I, I think we've kind of mentioned the, the concept that de- design ops can be a role, but really design ops is a, a practice, it's an activity. So whether or not you have the, the title, there is design ops work to be done. Absolutely. Yep. What strikes me is the notion of if, if a design ops uh, role or team is intended to look at the big picture of how all the moving parts fit together, creating process where process was either informal or undefined or messy or suboptimal, taking care of uh, tools and training, hiring, getting the right talent for your team, not just the best designers, but the best designer for your team to kind of have complementary skills. It, it kind of feels like you could easily get overwhelmed. So I'm <laughs> curious if you have thoughts on like where to start. So if I'm a, a design ops minded person who doesn't necessarily have the title to uh, back me up, where do you start? Well, like, like everything, you really have to start with the, the needs of the business, right? You have to look at what is, what are we going to, where can we get the most impact of the business right now and, and, and start with that. And so the way that I typically do that, and we've talked about this in the past is we start with a maturity model, right? Figuring out where we, where, what, what, levels of design maturity are possible. What level is this company completely uh, currently at? And, and more importantly for communicating to executives, what value do we get at be out of being at different levels? Right. And so I really start with that, figuring out the design maturity level of the organization, what the next level is, what those characteristics of getting to the next level looks like, and then what are the business impacts of, of achieving those, 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 those milestones. And then you can take that. It's like, okay, for our current context, what is the most important thing that's going to get us the impact right now? What are the things that, 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 that really needs, needs to be done so that we don't, that we're looking at immediate needs and also things that, that might be risky if we don't do them now. Like for mm-hmm. instance, one of the things that I did tackle was career levels frameworks for, for the organization. And I ended up getting roped into doing it for more than just the designers, but for engineers and and <laughs> product management and research <laughs> sciences and 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 business operations. Because yeah, I kind of got pulled into all that too. But that was good because that shows that design isn't just like again pushing pixels around this. We 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 have ways of doing things that that are valuable to the organization and and even including designing career path levels for people. Right? Mm-hmm. We didn't do it just like oh just we we put design practices into practice to actually design career levels that that were appropriate for the for the 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 different disciplines so that was actually fun and that was a kind of a design project even though i wasn't the the output wasn't screens or anything but the output was a framework for different disciplines to be able to have clear career paths for their individual contributors 
Well, that's really cool. So you don't necessarily feel like you're you're missing design because you still get to design the organization, if not necessarily the product. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. It, I wish I could be design more of the organization than I could, but <laughs> but yeah, just like it's really cool to be able to put design practices into place for things that are other than designing experiences for customers. Yeah. And so going back to the maturity model, yeah, that's how I, in it's, it's, it's defining where we are looking at the needs of the business and then prioritizing based upon immediate needs and also maybe near-term risks. And in the case of career levels, it's like, well, in order for us to continue our success, we need to be able to keep our designers. And so in order to keep our designers, we need to have clear paths of progression for their careers other to, to, to be able to keep them. And so that was something we decided was important for the business, even though, you know, it's not something that maybe direct, directly hits the bottom line in a very visible way for the, like the CFO, but like from an organizational risk and, and value that design gives to the organization on a regular basis, it's an important thing to do. That makes a ton of sense. Well, you've, you, you mentioned Dave Malouf. I know he's a, a leading thinker on design ops. We'll have in the show notes a link to um, his free book, Design Ops Handbook. And that's put out by Design Better, which I guess is like the the book label for Envision. Really, just everything is Envision. Everywhere you go, <laughs> if you read something, if you see something, it's all just Envision that's doing it. That free book is is excellent and 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 free. But I'm also I was going to ask other resources that you would point people to 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 help them get started. If you can go to the Design Ops Summit, I highly recommend it. It, it really changed my thinking on a lot of different things and was very influential into me jumping into this type of role. I believe there's a Slack community for design operations. That'd be a really good, it's a good, really good resource if you're looking for other people that are already, you know, working in that capacity. Good point. Yeah. Rosenfeld has uh, those, those communities and I believe design ops is one of them. And I recommend you join all of them because <laughs> outstanding uh, content delivered just every month. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Larry, I appreciate you very much illuminating what is design ops. And it sounds like a, a really cool and, and interesting uh, career path within design. We'll be sure to direct all of our resumes to you your LinkedIn. <laughs> I would hire all of you if I could. <laughs> very good. Very good. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it is, uh, it is something that's growing fast and should continue to generate a lot of opportunity for people too. Anytime you can prove the value of design, which is a lot of what design operations does, it amplifies and not proves, but really just it, it, it illuminates what the, the value designed to the organization. I think that's what gives us as designers more credibility in, in, in the business. And so that's why it's really important work. Thank you.